to what do you owe this recent openness to talk? Me. No, I think that nobody got that. Oh, they got it. They just didn't think it was either funny or true. But other than that, it was great. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on uh, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk and other fine affiliate partners, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Desi Doyen, of course, is here as well. Hi, Des. Hey. As uh, (laughs) incredibly, you know, since Donald Trump has taken office, we've pretty much gotten used to throwing out the show about once a day at <laughs> the least, at uh, least due to breaking news. Yeah, planning something and then throwing it out. We've had to throw out the show today about three times, and at least two of them were in the past 30 minutes. <laughs> Chaos Just, president strikes again. Indeed, it uh, he does. Uh, on Tuesday morning, Speaking of chaos, Donald Trump tried to say, no, no chaos going on here at all. Everything's fine. And, of course, he did it with a tweet. His tweet said the new fake news narrative is that there is chaos in the White House. Actually, that's not uh, entirely new, uh, but there's chaos in the White House, says the fake news. Wrong, says Donald Trump. People will always come and go, and I want strong dialogue before making a final decision. I still have some people that I want to change, which means they're going to have to leave in a second. Uh, He says, always seeking perfection. Perfection? Is that what that's called? I'd be happy if it was just, (laughs) you know... Stability? Yeah, that'd be nice. He says, there is no chaos, only great energy. All right. Well, first, whenever he uses words like strong to describe anything uh, or very hard or very special, that means he's doing nothing at all. He has no idea what he's doing. He has no idea what his people are doing around him. He's run out of words, so he can only think of the same four words. Correct. Someone buy the man a thesaurus. In any event, uh, as uh, CNN's Chris Saliza points out, 
that assertion that there is no chaos, no chaos, that uh, you people are the chaos, not me, that, of course, directly contradicts Trump himself, who said on Saturday night during a speech at the Gridiron Club in Washington that, quote, I like turno turnover, I like chaos, it really is good. It also direct directly contradicts uh, a list of chaos that has happened over the past week or two at the very least with uh, just one problem after another, one uh, top official after another leaving the White House. Donald Trump, of course, says he loves chaos, um, but uh, I would argue that it has nothing to do with liking chaos as a management tool. Uh, the chaos has to do with his incompetence at just about everything that he does. Saliza is arguing that, you know, when he was a businessman, he uh, he loved chaos, that uh, out of uh, chaos has in his business came progress and success throughout his life. Uh, but no, it's, it's not about chaos. It's because he doesn't know what he is doing. He is terrible at everything that he does, at least everything that he has to manage and oversee. Chaos is not his his managing or governing principle. It's because he's terrible at it. He's a terrible president, and uh, because it turns out that his his management style is is chaos, that does not work with the most complex bureaucracy in the world. That it turns out is even harder than managing a real estate company. Who would have known? Well, more chaos just moments before air as uh, top Trump economic advisor Gary Cohn appears now that he is also leaving the White House after breaking with Donald Trump on trade policy. Cohn, the director of the National Economic Council, has been the leading internal opponent to Trump's planned tariffs on imports of steel and aluminum. He's tried to orchestrate uh, an 11th-hour effort to push Trump to reverse course on that, but Trump has been resistant to those efforts and said again on Tuesday that he will, in fact, be imposing the tariffs in the coming days. We noted last week that Cohn had threatened to quit if Trump imposed these new tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, and despite the pushback against those tariffs from just about everyone, including his own Republican Party in uh, in the House and the Senate and our allies like Canada and Great Britain and the European Union, pushback from industrial sectors here in the U.S. like the oil and gas industry and the agricultural industry, which Donald Trump uh, claims to support, and they certainly have supported him. Well, uh, with Cohn leaving, I suspect that this means that, in fact, Trump is going to go ahead with those tariffs, or at least he's planning to, uh, and the subsequent trade war that will follow it. Yeah, all signs are pointing that way, so buckle up. So Cohn now becomes the latest in a series of very high-profile departures from the Trump administration. He's uh, expected to leave in the coming weeks. He joins a string of recent departures by the uh, senior White House officials, including Trump's communication director, uh, Hope Hicks, and uh, the powerful staff secretary, Rob Porter. The departure of Cohn, says The New York Times, um, is uh, who describes him as a free trade oriented Democrat who fended off a number of nationalist minded policies during his year in the Trump administration. That could have a ripple effect on the president's economic decisions and on the financial sector. Even the mere threat last August that Cohn might leave. 
That was when he threatened to leave after Trump had complimented the very fine people on both sides of a demonstration between white supremacist neo-Nazis and those who opposed him. Uh, Even the threat that Cohn might leave last year sent the financial markets tumbling. I suspect we will be seeing that again on Wednesday morning with the news of Cohn's leaving on uh, Tuesday afternoon. His, uh, his planned exit comes as the president is making a more aggressive return to those nationalist policies that helped him sweep into office as the 2018 midterm elections approach. Speaking of which, Donald Trump was asked about those elections and whether he had any plans to respond to the possibility of Russia or, I guess, anyone else Meddling in those 2018 midterms, he was asked during a joint press conference with the Prime Minister of Sweden at the White House on Tuesday. What do you think Sweden should learn from how the Russian influence campaign affected the presidential election in the U.S.? Well, the Russians had no impact on our votes whatsoever, uh, but certainly there was meddling and probably there was meddling from other countries and maybe other individuals. And I think you have to be uh, really watching very closely. You don't want your system of votes to be compromised in any way. And we won't allow that to happen. We're doing a very, very deep study, and we're coming out with some, I think, very strong suggestions on the 18 election. But you have to be very vigilant. And one of the things we're learning is it's always good. It's old-fashioned, but it's always good to have a paper backup system of voting. It's called paper, not highly complex computers, paper. And a lot of states are doing that. They're going to a paper backup. And I think that's a great idea. But we're studying it very closely. Various agencies, including Homeland Security, are studying it very carefully. But are you worried about Russian trying to meddle in the midterm election? No, because we'll counteract whatever they do. We'll counteract it very strongly. And we are having strong backup systems. And we've been working, actually, uh, we haven't been given credit for this, but we've actually been working very hard on the 18 election and the 20 election coming up. Who knew? Yeah, you are getting credit for it because you haven't done a goddamn thing, Mr. President, with all due respect. And by that, I mean none. Uh, So, okay, a couple of things there. I hate to agree with anything that Donald Trump says. So in this case, I will agree with just one single word he said. Paper. (laughs) Other than that, I can't even agree with the second part of that where he says paper backup. We don't need backup. We don't need paper backup. We need paper front up. We need the paper out front. We need hand-marked paper ballots. And when he claims that uh, states are moving to that by 2018, well... Clearly, he does not know what he's talking about. Now, note, he didn't say anything about countering the influence campaign that the journalist was asking him about, the influence campaign uh, allegedly carried out by Russia. But as far as the the, the paper goes uh, and saying we won't allow that to happen, we won't allow anyone to meddle, uh, Russians in this case, to meddle in our elections, we will counteract whatever they do. No, he won't. He can't. They haven't. The Department of Homeland Security has never even bothered to look back at the uh, uh, the election from 2016 to do any sort of forensic analysis to find out if, in fact, these uh, the the systems were 
monkeyed with in any way, whether it's by Russia or other countries or anyone here in the U.S., including the election officials who have the most direct access to manipulating election results and getting away with it because the public is not allowed to oversee the tabulation of ballots, even paper ballots. He calls them paper backup, even those are counted by computers and never checked by human beings to make sure that the results are accurate. They weren't checked in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in 2016, in in Michigan. Um, So, no, we will not counteract whatever they do, uh, whatever anyone does. Once they do it, it is done. And that's what just one of the things, but perhaps the loudest thing that we have been yelling about on this program, on the broadcast and at bradblog.com for the last 15 years. That is still where we are. Nothing has changed there. And uh, clearly the president of the United States does not understand the issue in the least. Otherwise, he would not be talking about paper backup. He would be talking about hand-marked paper ballots counted by uh, in public by human beings at the precinct on election night. That is the only way to, quote, counteract whatever they do. That's too many yeah. words all in a row. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I don't know. think he can manage yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Speaking of too many words uh, all in a row, uh, where am I here? That Those comments, by the way, were just before airtime today as well at the White House. Um, but uh, speaking of <sighs> former President George W. Bush has reportedly found the silver lining in Donald Trump's presidency. <laughs> Bush has been overheard remarking that Trump's run in the White House is going so poorly <laughs> that it makes him look good as a result, according to the National Journal. Sort of makes me look pretty good, doesn't it? Bush reportedly often says of Trump's presidency, according to the National Journal. Bush's favorability was uh, was low when he left the White House in 2009, but it has increased since then to 61 percent, which is far higher than uh, Donald Trump's uh, 40 percent rating. And by the way, that includes a majority of Democrats who now incredibly say that they approve of the job that Bush did. And, of course, that's the danger. Well, that's one of them, that every president that follows Donald Trump, no matter how horrible he or she is, like George W. Bush was, will be seen as, hey, pretty good. At least he wasn't Donald Trump. I recall very well uh, as we covered Bush's scandals from day to day at Bradblog.com throughout the eight long years of Bush's presidency. Uh, th- I remember thinking at the time that the only thing that was saving him, that was keeping him in office, was the number of scandals by his administration. That the media, and even those of us in the blogosphere who were much faster, that we could not even possibly keep up with before another scandal came in. You couldn't work on any one scandal long enough before another one broke out to grab everyone's attention. And in uh, George W. Bush's case, it was more corruption than incompetence, though there was a fair amount of incompetence as well. But now in Trump, we've got both in spades. So, no, it doesn't make you look pretty good, W. It just makes it difficult for many folks, apparently, to remember how horrific you were. But news out of North Korea today should serve as a reminder of just how terrible George W. Bush was, as I suspect we'll discuss with with my guests coming up here momentarily. 
even as uh, Donald Trump has, has taken up the mantle of horribleness from the previous horrible Republican president. Uh, will we ever learn? So, okay, this would seem to be some encouraging news for the moment out of North Korea, uh, where leader Kim Jong-un has told South Korean envoys that he is now willing to negotiate with the U.S. on abandoning his country's nuclear weapons. Kim also said that he would suspend all nuclear and missile tests while talks, uh, such talks were underway. Donald Trump reacted with what the New York Times describes as guarded optimism to the news, which potentially represents a major defusing of one of the world's tensest confrontations. On Twitter, Trump, uh, who, uh, <laughs> Trump called this, uh, quote, possible progress with the North, adding that uh, via Twitter, it may be false hope, but the U.S. is ready to go hard in either direction. Hard, hard to war or hard to peace, I guess. Again, buy some buy that man a thesaurus. In any event, uh, for Trump, the overture by North Korea sets in motion a challenging phase, says The New York Times, that will call on the U.S. to exercise diplomatic muscle after a long stretch in which the White House relied on economic pressure backed by threats of military force in order to deal with the North. That challenge will be compounded, the Times says, because the State Department's veteran North Korea negotiator, he just recently announced that he was retiring from the Foreign Service and another experienced negotiator, Victor Cha, was recently sidelined when the White House withdrew his nomination as ambassador to South Korea because Cha, who served in the George W. Bush administration and is known for a hawkish approach to uh, North Korea, Cha had the temerity to express concern about the Trump administration's notion that they could launch a limited so-called bloody nose strike against the North without sparking a larger conflagration. So we got no negotiators uh, familiar with the North or the South because of the chaos presidency. But let's still, let's call the news out of North Korea. Let's say it's good news or at least encouraging news of the potential easing of one potential nuclear conflagration today. That comes on the heels of what now seems like an all-new nuclear arms race with Donald Trump's friends in Russia. That story is next with the atomic analyst Stephen Schwartz right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. That's all we're saying. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Give peace a chance. That would be nice. Well, maybe uh, peace will have a chance on the Korean Peninsula, if not in Russia. Let's start with uh, North Korea, where leader 
Kim Jong-un has expressed a willingness to discuss nuclear disarmament with the U.S. and impose a moratorium on nuclear and missile testing during such talks. That, according to a senior South Korean official on Tuesday, Kim has also agreed to meet to meet with South Korea's president in person in late April. North Korea's reported willingness to hold a candid dialogue with the U.S. to discuss denuclearization and establish diplomatic relations follows a year of increased fears of war on the Korean peninsula with Kim and the U.S. president, Donald Trump, exchanging fiery rhetoric, crude insults, and more over Kim's barrage of weapons tests. Trump tweeted on Tuesday that possible, quote, possible progress was being made in the talks with North Korea and that all sides were making serious efforts. He said, quote, may be false hope, but the U.S. is ready to go hard in either direction. There is still skepticism, however, whether the developments will establish genuine peace between the Koreas. Many experts believe North Korea won't easily give up its nuclear program that it has doggedly developed despite years of escalating international pressure to cope with what it claims is U.S. hostility. If talks do happen with the U.S., South Korea's National Security Director said that North Korea made it clear that it will not resume additional nuclear tests or test launches of ballistic missiles during those talks. The North told the South uh, South Korean envoys who were in Pyongyang uh, this uh, this week for talks with Kim that it would not need to keep its nuclear weapons if military threats against it are removed and if it receives a credible security guarantee from the U.S., they said that the North promised not to use its nuclear or its conventional weapons against South Korea. So there's that, at least. The South, uh, the South's national security director also said that Kim and liberal South Korean President Moon Jae-in will establish a hotline communications channel to lower military tensions and that they would speak before the planned summit in April. Analyst Chung Song Chang at South Korea's Sejong Institute said the agreements potentially paved the way for meaningful dialogue between Washington, D.C. and Pyongyang and could offer an opportunity to stably manage the threat posed by North Korea's nuclear weapon and missiles program. The potential and I underscore potential for peace breaking out on the Korean peninsula follows Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement last week in Moscow of a series of new nuclear weapons, new nuclear weapons that he claims are already being deployed. An underwater drone armed with a nuclear warhead powerful enough to sweep away coastal facilities and aircraft carriers, a hypersonic vehicle impossible to intercept as it flies in a cloud of plasma, quote, like a meteorite, those are among the new strategic weapons that uh, Vladimir Putin said on Thursday that Russia now has, declaring that, quote, no one has listened to us. You listen to us now. Putin unveiled what AP described as a stunning catalog of doomsday machines in his annual State of the, State of the Nation speech, saying that Russia had to build them to counter the potential threat posed by the U.S. missile defense system, which we have been deploying in Europe and near the Russian border. 
It wasn't immediately possible to assess whether the weapons could do what Putin said or how ready they are for development, but they would represent a major technological breakthrough that could dramatically bolster Russia's military capability, according to experts, and boost its global position while triggering a new arms race. White House uh, spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that Donald Trump understands the threats and that America is, quote, moving forward to modernize our nuclear arsenal to ensure our capabilities are unmatched. Putin said, quote, you will have to assess the new reality and become convinced that what I said today isn't a bluff. He said, it's not a bluff. Trust me. He said the creation of the new weapons has made NATO's U.S.-led missile defense, quote, useless, putting an end to what he described as years of Western efforts to sidetrack and weaken Russia. Joe Serencioni, the director of the Plowshares Fund, a nonprofit which has long fought for global denuclearization, he, he said, uh, the, uh, he tweeted in response to Putin, uh, welcome to the new nuclear arms race. Putin announces four nuclear weapons to answer the three nuclear weapons that the U.S. announced just last month in February, adding this will not end well. Well, neato. This is all going very well. Well, and when things are going this well, we like to turn to our favorite atomic analyst who is always wildly informative, even if he almost never makes us feel much better after we speak with him. Stephen Schwartz is a nuclear weapons policy analyst. He's the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. They are the keepers of the infamous doomsday clock, the analogous warning to the world of how close we may be at any given time to annihilation of planet Earth. He's also the former editor of the Nonproliferation Review and an adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Stephen Schwartz, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Hello again. Good to be here. Lots to talk about today, so let me start with what seems to be encouraging news today out of Korea. If Donald Trump is smart enough not to screw it up, it seems like uh, many are regarding the news that North Korea is willing to talk to the U.S. about its nuclear program keeping the door open to denuclearization there uh, as encouraging, even if they offered uh, uh, similar concessions in the past, North Korea, uh, in exchange for security guarantees that have eventually failed. Uh, what should we make of this latest news, Professor? Well, Winston Churchill once said that uh, it's better to jaw-jaw than war-war, mm. and uh, I think that's probably the first takeaway uh, from from today's news. The second takeaway is that it really isn't news, although it's certainly being portrayed that way by uh, the media, who apparently didn't realize or forgot that in uh, July of 2017, North Korea said essentially the same thing, July 4th, 2017, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact. And it is actually a long-standing position of North Korea that it will consider getting rid of its nuclear weapons, but the condition for doing that is that the military threat that they see coming from the United States and South Korea has to be eliminated, which means that U.S. troops in South Korea have to be gone, and there also has to be some sort of reassurance that we aren't targeting North Korea with our own nuclear weapons. If those things happen, then North Korea says it would be willing to 
jettison its nuclear program. Um, obviously, we're not going to be doing that, and therefore I don't think this is likely to go anywhere. But if we could at least agree that that's a good end point, we could sit down and have a conversation rather than be you know, threatening each other. There have been uh, similar agreements in the past with North Korea, between the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, I believe President uh, uh, Bill Clinton signed uh, an agreement uh, guaranteeing the security of North Korea that we wouldn't be attacking them. Is is there something else that could be, and that I guess eventually went away? I don't know if it was was it abandoned by George W. Bush. Is that what happened with the? Uh... It was it was one of two arms control agreements that were abandoned by George uh, W. Bush. The second most consequential mistake of his entire administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that was the 1994 Agreed Framework, where we nearly went to war with North Korea, and at the last minute achieved a diplomatic breakthrough whereby we would provide them with access to non uh, with with nuclear power reactors to generate electricity mm-hmm. which they were short of and uh, we would make some security guarantees and in return they would mothball their plutonium uh, reactor and stop making plutonium for nuclear weapons and it worked and we were uh, you know we were talking and we were implementing it both sides had problems into implementing it. They didn't fully live up to their side of the agreement. We also, working with Japan and South Korea, never ultimately built those reactors, which which really pissed off North Korea. And uh, then George W. Bush came into power after Bill Clinton left and decided he didn't, just like Trump doesn't want to do anything that Obama did, Bush didn't want to do anything or continue anything that mm-hmm. Clinton did. So he basically abandoned that agreement, and North Korea walked away from it, and, and here we are. So there have been breakthroughs in diplomacy in the past. I certainly hope that there will be in the future. Uh, but at this point, it, I, I'm not holding out a whole lot of hope that it's going to happen anytime soon. Of course, nobody can know uh, for sure, but uh, do you have any confidence that Trump might actually at least take up the North here? I mean, he's reneged on many other, you know, seeming deals once he got, uh, you know, what he had initially asked for, only to then move the goalposts and and kill the possibility of a deal. Uh, You you can look at uh, DACA and immigration, the deal, uh, and the about faces uh, there, for example. Given that, do you have any confidence that uh, Trump would, A, move forward here, and B, wouldn't the uh, wouldn't North Korea be within their rights to say that they need to maintain their nuclear program if only to guard against whether it's Trump or any other president coming in and once again uh, reversing positions as the U.S. has done in the past, as Donald Trump has shown he's willing to do now? Well, to your to your first question, it very much depends on who the last person is that Donald Trump speaks to. Uh, the other day, when he said he talked to North Korea, turns out he was actually talking to South Korea. So take, take from that what you will. <laughs> right. But he tweeted out that, you know, yes, we'd be happy to have a conversation, but they have to get rid of their nuclear weapons first. So that seems to be his starter position. That's also his starter position with Iran, but Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons thanks to a very effective agreement that's currently in effect, which Trump also wants to walk away from. So uh, I, I, I don't know. He could, you know, if he might one day be convinced by somebody that it's a good idea to engage in you know, a conversation leading to perhaps negotiations with North Korea, and the next day John, John Bolton walks into his office mm-hmm. and blows the whole thing up. So I, I, I don't know. John Donald Trump is consistently inconsistent, so I don't know. On the second point, 
yes, that is the point that North Korea has been making, is that they have felt under threat from the United States for decades now. Remember, we've had nuclear weapons pointed at them since the Korean War, uh, and even at one point considered using them. Uh, and, of course, they haven't had nuclear weapons since, uh, since 2006. So, uh, you know, they, they would feel that they are well within their rights to not only maintain but possibly expand what they've got in order to deter us from anything uh, that would, you know, compromise the, uh, the integrity and longevity of the Kim regime. So that's where they are. I think, you know, from my perspective way out here, we seem to be at somewhat of an impasse. But, again, if we can at least sit down and start talking about what, the, what we would like the ultimate goal to be and perhaps work on some sort of mutually uh, reinforcing uh, confidence-building measures where we could perhaps pull back on something like an exercise with South Korea, for example, mm-hmm. and they could take some action that would also reassure us. We can build on that. You know, unfortunately, it's very tenuous, and it could fall apart at any moment, but it's worth trying. At the very least, because uh, this was supposed to be the good news portion of our conversation, Steve. Uh, <laughs> at the very least, can we take some good news from the uh, from well, the, the good news. I, uh, the good news is that yeah. we are talking about the possibility of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. We're not talking about lobbing nuclear weapons in both directions. So there is... A little bit of good news, but I think it needs to be taken in context. Well, I was going to suggest that uh, is it not good news that at least North has uh, the the North has agreed to not use either nuclear or conventional weapons against the South, and that at least the North and the South at this point seem to be talking, even if Donald Trump remains a wild card here. Uh, that is, I'm cautiously optimistic. Yes, it's it's good that they are deploying that rhetoric. Uh, of course, we would have to see something, uh, you know, more than that in mm-hmm. order to be fully reassured. But it's certainly better than, you know, threatening to cut off their heads or all the other metaphors that the Kim regime is so ably employed over the years. All right. Well, with that good news, I kind of want to uh, hang up and say thanks, Stephen. i got to go. But <laughs> I have to go to Russia instead. I want to run through what we know about these specific weapons that uh, Putin detailed uh, late last week. But uh, first, in general, what do you make of his announcement in general that they've got this whole new series of uh, nuclear weapons that they either already have uh, deployed or will be deploying in the near future? Well, so there's a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, there's an election in Russia. Putin is going to win because nobody else is really running against him, uh, which is a situation Donald Trump would envy and probably does. Uh, but he also has to convince enough people that, you know, he's worth voting for so that he gets a respectable showing and they don't have to meddle in their own election to make him look better than he actually does. So, you know, Russia likes to think that it's a superpower, but it's really not anymore, and the economy is in the doldrums, to say the least. And so what better way to convince your, uh, you know, public who is kind of disengaged and, you know, not likely to believe the government uh, than to point to the U.S. threat and say we have this wonderful new way of dealing with it, these fantastic new weapons that will defend us at all costs and can thwart anything that the United States can throw at us. I mean, we've done things similar over the years. So that's, you know, that's a big reason why the announcement was made when it was. Uh, the other factor, there's a couple other factors. One of the other factors, we knew about two of these weapons already. The, the SARMAT missile, the massive ICBMs with the multiple warheads that's mm-hmm. supposed to thwart our missile defense system, which doesn't really work, but the Russians don't believe us 
uh, or don't believe those of us who say that it doesn't really work. Wait, our, our, our missile our missile defense doesn't work, or their their huge new ICBM doesn't. No, work? our missile de- they don't believe our, they they don't believe that our missile defense isn't capable of stopping their missiles, which is why they're deploying this new system with warheads to mm-hmm. to basically overwhelm it. Uh, myself, many of my colleagues have said. This system, you know, first of all, it's never been tested realistically. Second of all, it only has a handful of interceptors. So if Russia, you know, were to lob a significant number of weapons at it, it wouldn't work. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and nevertheless, the United States government says, in fact, it does work, although just this week we found out that going forward, they're not going to announce any uh, future information about any forthcoming tests of the system. Uh, translation, we don't want you to know how crappy it is, so we're not going to tell you anything about it. Uh, but the Russian government has always been somewhat paranoid about U.S. intentions, and it's always been wildly optimistic about our technological capabilities and prowess. And so even though you know they might see that the tests haven't fully succeeded and they might understand that those of us in the non-governmental community say, hey, this isn't all it's cracked up to be, in the back of their minds they're thinking it's the United States. They've got amazing capabilities. They've got stealth bombers. They've got these and that. You know, this system, they must be hiding something. It must be better than, than we think. It isn't, really. So they're putting a lot of money into a system to thwart something that doesn't really work and doesn't technically exist. But in any case, uh, so we knew about two of these weapons, uh, that, that large ICBM and the, what they call the Status-6, this, this nuclear-powered underwater torpedo that would be designed to blow up a, uh, a coastal city or a port and... Uh, blow lots of radiation in the environment and basically make it impossible for people to live there for mm-hmm. for generations. We knew about those two. The, the two we didn't know about are, are those, be, before you go to the other ones, yeah. are, are, are those two for real? Do they work? Is this under this uh, the underwater? ICBM, the ICBM is, is, is for real. It's a replacement for their massive SS-18 missile, which mm-hmm. is getting on in years like our missiles are. Uh, it's not a secret. It's been tested. We know it exists. Exactly how many warheads it would hold, you know, remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. It's worth pointing out that the, uh, as we're talking about arms control agreements, uh, the the new START agreement just went uh, into effect officially last month. Uh, if Donald Trump does not uh, choose to extend it, which he and Vladimir Putin can do on their own without any other involvement of their governments, uh, Congress in our case, the Russian Duma. In Putin's case, uh, it will expire in three years, in 2021. And if it does, that means Russia can deploy as many nuclear ICBMs and submarines and bombers and put as many warheads on those systems as it wants without any constraint whatsoever and completely overwhelm whatever kind of missile defense system we might have. And then we'd truly be off to the races. And for that matter, we could do the same thing as well. It's not in either side's interest to do that. So I hope that you know Trump and Putin will... Uh, explore the possibility of extending the treaty, which is written in the treaty itself, uh, which Putin very much would like to do for lots of obvious reasons. And Trump said this is a bad deal and we're not going to do it. Um, so the, uh, uh, what we don't know about are the, the, uh, this uh, hypersonic weapon, which we're working on these two, uh, you know, super-fast missile that can evade defenses and so forth. Mm-hmm. That seems to be in the testing phase. And then the one that's most curious is this nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed cruise missile, which there was this very classy video of uh, that shows it sort of whirling around the ocean, going around uh, the tip of South America, and then coming up on our southern flank, where conveniently we have no radars and no missile defense system 
And so, you know, Putin can jab us in the behind, as it were, and, uh, you know, that's what he was saying, and now you will, you will listen to us. Uh, this, this particular weapon seems to be more of a Potemkin missile than an actual missile. Putin said it was tested, and everybody went, ooh and ah, and then it turns out that it was tested not with a nuclear uh, reactor powering it, but with an electrical uh, uh, rocket engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, if it were tested, it would spew radiation all over the place. This is actually an update, mm-hmm. if it exists at all, an update of an idea, an idea that the United States pursued in the late 1950s and early 1960s called SLAM, or supersonic uh, land attack missile, that was powered by a nuclear ramjet. So you basically use a reactor to heat up the air, superheat the air, and propel the missile. And the advantage is that it can go very far, very fast, and even loiter over areas. Uh, one person suggested that because it would spew radiation out the back end, because it's an unshielded reactor, after it's done dropping its multiple nuclear bombs, it could just kind of cruise over the Soviet Union spewing radiation everywhere and killing people. Mm. Um, so it's a really, truly nasty weapon. Uh, and, of course, you know, if, if that weapon were, it's nasty if it works, right? But what happens if it crashes or it's shot down? Not right. only do you have nuclear weapons on board, you've got a nuclear reactor. So you've got sort of a Chernobyl or a Fukushima happening right where this thing goes down on land or in the ocean. So really, really nasty, horrible idea. We abandon it because... It turns out it didn't work very well, and ICBM solved the particular problem it was designed to address, namely that bombers couldn't get through, so we put a missile up, and, you know, great, that works fine. So two we didn't know about, two we did, um, but it's sort of less than meets the eye. Again, I think a lot of it was for domestic uh, uh, political Mm -hmm. consumption. It's certainly something to keep an eye on. Uh, You know, I, I wouldn't want to see any of those particular systems developed and and pointed at us, but in at least a couple of cases, it doesn't look like that they're more than, you know, sort of concepts that are very much in the R&D stage. The, um, I've got just a minute or two here left, Stephen Schwartz. Um, I'm always happy, of course, to blame Donald Trump for pretty much anything because he deserves it, frankly. In this case, though, we had a Democratic presidential nominee in Hillary Clinton who was incredibly aggressive toward Russia uh, for for good reason or not. She was incredibly aggressive toward Russia. Of course, Obama was similarly hostile uh, and, and seen as threatening uh, by Russia. Uh, is it likely that we would have seen the introduction of these weapons no matter who uh, actually won the uh, presidential race in 2016? Are these something that uh, Russia would have likely uh, moved forward with in, in either case, whether it was Trump or Clinton? Uh, we can blame another president, George W. Bush. Putin even said in his speech, the reason that these weapons went into development, the reason that they're so concerned about us and that they're developing them is because we unilaterally abandoned the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. Well, Bush announced it in December 2001, and then six months later, under the terms of the treaty, we walked away. Mm-hmm. That treaty locked in mutual vulnerability, MAD, mutual assured destruction, which conservatives and true believers of missile defense hate because they think that there's a technological solution to the political problem of the nuclear threat that we're living with. And that solution is, well, was Star Wars under Ronald Reagan, and now it's ground-based missile defense and, you know, several other systems. Um, but, the, uh, but Putin was very clear that when we walked away from that treaty, the, 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 the feeling, you know, the, the guarantee that he had that if anybody tried something, we would all die, went away, again, because they have great, uh, they're terribly optimistic about our technological capabilities, and they think if we try hard enough and spend enough money, 
we'll find a missile defense system that works that will completely negate their offensive nuclear system. So they are frantically trying to develop ways to mm. overwhelm, underfly, uh, and otherwise thwart our, our ballistic missile defense capabilities. So all of that work, certainly the thinking for it, began after Bush walked away from the treaty in 2002, and here we are 17 mm. years later, uh, 16 years later, and, uh, you know, these things are, are, are very much in place. So, yes, if Clinton had been president, and obviously this has continued under under President Obama, if Clinton had become president, we might have seen some of them, but I don't think we would have seen the ratcheting up of the rhetoric to the level where we are now. Last question. And we would have, I'm sure we would be pursuing arms control, whereas we're not, with, with Donald Trump. I, last question uh, for you, Stephen Schwartz. The uh, U.S. claims that these missile defense systems that have uh, so troubled uh, Russia, whether they work or not, that they're being uh, deployed, we claim, you know, for defensive purposes only. So my question, uh, well, multi-part question, I guess, uh, is that true? Or does Putin have every right to be alarmed by these systems that are, you know, near the Russian border? I mean, wouldn't we, for example, be alarmed if Russia deployed similar systems claiming they were defensive only, uh, you know, in Canada or in Mexico or in Cuba? I, I don't think people understand. Maybe I'm wrong, but, I, you know, I'm not the, the Russia hawk that many are. I, I would be um, very troubled if I had these kind of missile systems on my border the way Russia does. So are these for defensive purposes only, and does he have a right to be concerned about U.S. encroachment that far away from our own homeland here? Well, in, in, in part of the problem with the Russian psyche with regard to their view of the world, their view of their security situation, beyond the, the ABM Treaty and the mutual vulnerability problem, is that we expanded NATO under Bill Clinton, so we brought it right up to Russia's borders, mm-hmm. and that that supremely annoyed Putin well before he became president, and now, you know, even to this day, it, it, it's a huge problem for him. And, uh, and that's not to say that, you know, Russia has done some horrible things with, you know, invading Crimea and, uh, you know, the, the, other, the other offensive activities that it has done, you know, in the last decade or so. Um, so they you know, can't let them off the hook at all. Um, but when it comes to missile defense, you know, is it offensive, is it defensive? I think we have to go back and look at what Ronald Reagan said when he announced the Strategic Defense Initiative in March of 1983, March 23rd. And he said in that famous televised speech that, you know, it could be viewed, the system that he was developing or thinking about developing to make nuclear weapons or specifically ballistic missiles, impotent and obsolete, could be viewed as being a threat if you combined it with a strong offensive force. In other words, you have a sword and a shield, he said. And he said, nobody wants that. Okay, so flash forward to today. We are undergoing a $1.7 trillion upgrade of all our nuclear weapon systems, plus we're going to build some new ones if Trump can find the money for it. And we are talking about expanding our ballistic missile defense capabilities to deal with not only the North Korean threat, but possibly, you know, a somewhat larger China threat, and maybe even take on some of what Russia might be able to throw at us by, by deploying more intercepts. We have something like 44 interceptors right now, and you need to fire two or three mm-hmm. in an incoming warhead. So you can't take on too many missiles. This is not nationwide defense. But if we put more interceptors out there, we can take on more incoming warheads. So what, what 
Putin is concerned about and what his generals are concerned about is that we could use, and this is all theoretical, but mm -hmm. it's what they're worried about, we could take our nuclear weapons and strike them first and strike them out of the blue or in a way where they wouldn't be able to react fast enough to get their weapons out before we could destroy them and then use our missile defense system to mop up whatever they could throw back at us, which, if we're successful enough, would be such a small amount of weapons that our missile defense system could deal with it adequately. Again, all theoretical, wouldn't want to test it in the real world. That's what he's concerned about, and therefore he feels the need to maintain nuclear weapons on alert and develop these new systems to make sure that something will get through. So it puts us on a very dangerous precipice, much like we were in the 1980s, but with far more technologically capable weapons. So that's, that's really where his thinking is coming from. And if we could go back to a situation where we had an ABM treaty and guarantee that missile defenses you know, couldn't be as extensive as they are now, and we could rein in some of these offensive systems, I think we would all be much better off. Uh, we would, and I can't, I can't help but noticing, but, you know, all of these so-called threats, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Russia, always seem to be in response to what it is that the U.S. is doing and the aggressive stance of uh, the U.S. around the globe. Stephen Schwartz, always great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, you should follow Stephen on the Twitters at Atomic Analyst. And I suspect we will be uh, calling you again soon uh, next, next time we've got another uh, doomsday question to bring to you, Stephen. Thanks again for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You bet. Okay, speaking of doomsday, Desi Doyen joins us next for a <laughs> uh, very doomy Green News report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Welcome back to your broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, utilities across the Northeast are racing to restore power to tens of thousands of customers, many of whom are still underwater from the previous storm. Who could have predicted? Uh, you did, as another one is uh, barreling through, as discussed in our latest Green News Report. These metals are used in energy infrastructure build-out. Higher costs would hurt the energy companies. Oil and gas industry slams Donald Trump's proposed steel tariffs. Boston hit with historic flooding for second time in a month with more on the way. Toxic coal ash is contaminating groundwater supplies near coal plants. Plus, plastic pollution has reached all the way up to the Arctic. All of those fantastic news stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. CO2 is benign gas required for life on Earth and is not dirty. 
Wow. Former coal exec Fred Palmer couldn't say anything dumber. Coal is not dirty. Coal is green. I stand corrected. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the East Coast, specifically Boston, has been getting slammed, and it's going to be getting slammed again in just a day or two. Yes, it is. Over the weekend, Boston was hit by the second hundred-year storm in one month. The intense nor'easter left eight people dead and brought hurricane-force winds and flooding to coastal communities along the northeastern seaboard. The storm surge in Boston was the third highest ever recorded, and that happened just weeks after a previous storm broke downtown Boston's all-time flood record. The Boston Globe connected the climate dots with this double whammy of rising seas and frequent intense storms that increase risks for coastal communities. Quote, the spectacle of seawater swamping coastal communities once again raised concerns about how these heavily developed areas will endure rising sea levels caused by climate change, a preview of the extreme flooding the city can expect in the years ahead. In the years ahead, at this point, it's the days ahead. Indeed. Meanwhile, the oil and gas industry has slammed President Trump's surprise proposal to impose major tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. Surprise! Going so far as to call them job-killing tariffs, saying those steel tariffs would increase costs at every stage of operations, from drilling to pipelines to refineries, and would result in higher prices for consumers. Wow, he's actually going to harm his his own base in the oil and gas industries? Is he crazy? Uh, don't answer that. But it's not just the fossil fuel industry. The American Wind Energy Association also said that the proposed tariffs would increase the cost of wind energy infrastructure projects, particularly costs for domestic wind turbine manufacturers. Well, that's just a bonus for Trump. Trump's tariffs also risk a global trade war. European Commission Chief Jean-Claude Juncker did not mince words. So now we will also impose import tariffs, he said said in Hamburg. This is basically a stupid process, the fact that we have to do this, but we have to do it. We'll now impose tariffs on motorcycles, Harley-Davidson, on blue jeans, Levi's, on bourbon. We can also do stupid. We also have to be this stupid. It's turning into World War Stupid. Meanwhile, coal ash waste is polluting groundwater supplies at coal-fired power plants across the country. Coal ash is the toxic sludge left behind after burning coal for electricity. We make 100 million tons of it a year, and it's often stored in unlined pits. According to a new Associated Press analysis of data released by utilities, groundwater is now contaminated with elevated levels of toxic pollutants like arsenic and radium, near more than 70 coal-fired power plants and coal ash disposal sites around the country. This is going very well. The AP analysis of groundwater contamination data came out just one day after the Trump EPA announced it plans to weaken regulations on coal ash disposal. Of course... Scientists at the National University of Ireland, Galway, have now confirmed that our plastic pollution has reached deep into even the most remote parts of the northern Atlantic Ocean and is affecting marine life. The researchers found 73% of the deep-sea fish that they tested had ingested microplastics, tiny pieces of broken-down plastic found in their stomachs. This is 73% of the fish 
all the way up in the Arctic have plastic in them? Yes. Wow. But Mumbai is taking action. India's biggest city is phasing in a ban on most types of single-use plastics, and that includes single-use plastic bags, disposable containers and utensils, and they're starting this month. And finally, Hawaii, a state with a $17 billion tourism industry and a persistent plastic pollution problem on its beaches and in its oceans, is moving to become the very first U.S. state to institute a statewide ban on polystyrene food containers. Wow. Thank you, Hawaii. For all of those stories and more, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Ain't no drag. Papa's got a brand new bag. Come on. So do I detect the tiniest bit of good news at the yes. end of that uh, Green News Report, yep. Desi Doyen? Just a little bit. Communities are doing their best to make change. You are the light of the world. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. You know, I remember when everyone was freaking out in Los Angeles that they were going to stop uh, you know, giving away plastic bags. And it turned out to be fine it and easy. It works out great. Yes, yep. you keep a couple of bags in your car that are insulated and uh, I don't think we brought a new plastic bag home for, what, right. a year or two. It's easy. It is. Uh, hey, don't worry about it, folks in the rest of the country. You'll survive it. All right. Well, we survived today's show, Des. Uh, thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer. And, of course, my thanks to our guest today, Stephen Schwartz. Uh, you can drop me email. That's right. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. If you like, you can find me on the Twitters at the Bradblog. And if you missed any portion of today's program... You can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Though while you're there, we always appreciate those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. It's the only way we're going to be able to continue to do this. So uh, please consider a subscription of any amount you can afford uh, at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Is that it? Yes, I think that's it. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>